0: I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Elian Wu, is a New York Times bestselling author whose writing has appeared in the Boston Globe, The Wall Street Journal, Time magazine and The New York Times. She is the author of two books, each of which combines history and biography based on painstaking research and employing a novelistic narrative writing style. Her first book, The Great Divorce, A 19th Century Mother's Extraordinary Fight Against Her Husband, The Shakers and Her Times, was published in 2010. Her most recent book, published just this year, is Master, Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom, which is the subject of today's interview. Ilya, welcome to Delving In.
1: Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be here.
0: So first of all, kudos on your latest book, which is receiving well-deserved stellar reviews one of which proclaimed that everyone would be a history major if more history books were written this way. <laughs> Tell us about your selecting the, this particular story to write about your preparation for writing the book and for choosing a writing style currently known as creative nonfiction.
1: All right, thank you very much for that multi-part story. I guess I'll take on the first part in terms of how I connected with the story. And this is a moment that I really try to conjure each time I'm asked this question, because it was such a powerful reading moment for me. Um, I was in graduate school at the time, and I was taking a class on the literature of passing. I actually, frankly, was not very happy in graduate school. I didn't want to be picking apart literature. I wanted to be loving it and growing it. I didn't really enjoy academic writing either producing or reading it but i still love the stories and this one in particular it just took me out of time and place and really transported me into this other universe the universe of running a thousand miles to freedom which is the narrative that the crafts wrote So I remember feeling like that voice was in my ear and wanting to follow this voice. I remember being deeply moved uh, by the trauma that the crafts evoke in the story about their journey to freedom, but also the bits that come before that. And I found myself really wanting to know more. They say a lot in their story, but there's a lot that they also leave out. So I was left with these questions. And I guess I kept coming back to the story over the years, every couple of years, I'd wonder about it. I'd wonder what happened to them. I'd wonder about their backstory. And I honestly hoped that somebody would write a book where I could learn some of those things myself. But that book didn't come along. And at a certain point, I guess I started doing some of that, as you describe, painstaking research, and fell into an Alice in Wonderland, big, deep rabbit hole and I couldn't help but start delving in.
0: So as you mentioned, they wrote a a book themselves, a a fairly short one, I think 60 something pages about their escape, but not the whole context before and after. And also they were public speakers, so there were many newspaper articles about them. So there was a lot to look into, but I imagine you also had to uh, really ferret out some less uh, accessible information as well.
1: Yeah, there was a real balance. I'm so glad to have had that original narrative. The story wouldn't have existed without it. And it wouldn't have existed without their bravery, not only in making the escape, but as you say, in telling their story. So I think this is also what makes their writing so powerful is that by the time they write their story, they've told it across thousands of more miles. They they told it on an abolitionist lecture circuit in in new england they told it in england in the united kingdom and in scotland they had a dozen years to tell this story in many different ways so when you when they wrote it down there's almost like an imprint of this oral story sort of etched into the writing itself that makes it feel really immediate and accessible but there there's a lot that they they leave out which is where that research began and for that I used a huge, a host of different kinds of information. There are the newspapers and the public records, but there are also private letters and diaries and all kinds of other um, archival information that I used to really bring their story to the fore.
0: Yeah. Another remarkable thing about their book is the fact that they wrote it <laughs> because they were slaves and as slaves, they were not permitted to learn to read or write. And they, that was, that happened only later. In fact, that happened even after their lecture circuit in New England, it was only after they went to England. That's really uh, remarkable.
1: Exactly, and it's actually one of the reasons why they, they decided to make this extraordinary escape for a host of different reasons, which I explore in the book. It's one of the big questions I had going into the research uh, because they keep the circumstances of their departure pretty general. And I wanted to know was there a specific impetus And I did find some specific motivations in their time and place. But one of the sort of general pressing reasons that they had throughout their lives to want to escape slavery is because they did not have literacy. They were denied literacy. And there's so many levels of irony there for Ellen Craft growing up in a household where both her father and her later enslaver, Robert Collins, both of them were really heavily invested in education and specifically in the education of young women. So Ellen Craft grew up in a place where education was valued, but absolutely denied for her. And later on, when she ends up in Boston and she's talking on the lecture circuit, she cites this as a reason, one of the reasons why, why she needed to escape.
0: Now you, you open the book uh, with this paragraph in 1848, William and Ellen Craft, an enslaved couple in Georgia embarked on a 5,000 mile journey of mutual self-emancipation across the world. Theirs is a love story that begins in a time of revolution, a revolution unfinished in the American war for independence, a revolution that endures." So in, in just two sentences you provide the historical context, the aspirational vision of an America that lives up to its own ideals, and the enormous distance that the, both the crafts and the country have to travel to finally arrive at its hoped-for destination. So you put all that together and then even knowing the ending, for the reader, even knowing the ending, it's still riveting to hear about these suspenseful events with a danger lurking around nearly every corner. And also central to the narratives is the reader being inducted into the hearts and minds of the protagonists, luring us into what it must have been like to be a slave. And I thought that was really one of the most valuable things about the book and that you've written it and that we have it to read is there were many slave narratives and movies and so on, but it's really, I think, so important for all of us to put ourselves in those shoes.
1: Yeah, thank you for that reading and pointing to the initial overture. There had actually been some disagreement with my publisher, two different camps over whether the short story should just hit the ground running or the crafts at four in the morning in their cabinets, much more sort of dramatic moment, right? Getting ready to leave. And I do start the book that way, the first chapter that way. But this overture was really important to me to really establish the scope the scale of the story. Because too often stories like that of the crafts end up becoming footnotes or sort of side stories to what's presented as a major American history. And I really wanted to start with a giant lens, looking at the revolution, looking at the nation, looking at these larger patterns and trends in which the crafts themselves and their escape participated. So I start really big, but then I also wanted to go on the super granular level, looking at what kind of shoes Ellen Craft was wearing on her feet or the feel and the texture of the clothes that she was wearing or what it was like actually to travel on one of these trains. I thought I had this picture in my mind of this gigantic steam train like we see in the movies, chugging along, larger than life. But actually when I got to studying the specific vehicles that they were on, these trains were actually quite small. They had almost more like a grasshopper-like look to them. In fact, the earlier trains, there was one called the grasshopper. I went very a deep dive into, into train history. And yeah, it, it established the physical parameters of the world and to conjure as much as I could all five senses to make you feel like you were back in time.
0: So getting into the actual plot a little bit, a critical element that made all of this, uh, their escape possible was that Ellen, who was only a quarter black, looked entirely white. And it's a really critical element. And she didn't need to work to pass as white, only to pass as male. <laughs> so let's talk about that, about you know, how their plan, how they hatched a plan and the skills they needed to pull it off.
1: Yes. Ellen grew up knowing that she looked white. And in fact, she was punished for this from her childhood because she bore such a strong physical resemblance to her biological father that her biological father's legal wife, maybe I should step back for a minute here to say that Ellen was the daughter of an enslaved woman, Maria, and by the man who enslaved Maria and Ellen, a man named James Smith. And James Smith had a wife, a legal wife, Eliza Cleveland Smith, who had children roughly the same age as Ellen was. And because Ellen so strongly resembled her father, when people would come and visit, they would mistake Ellen for a child of the family. And that would enrage this mistress. And so the mistress just wanted to get rid of her as soon as possible. So when Ellen became 12 years old, sorry, 11 years old, and her own biological half-sister, this mistress's daughter, was getting married at age 18. This mistress made sure that Ellen would go with her as a wedding gift. And this was an incredibly traumatic experience for the young Ellen, as you can imagine. She's only 11 and sent to live in this entirely different household, banished really because of this resemblance. Her her passing for white, that's not even the right expression, her appearing white, when the last thing she wanted to do was to appear white. And so the fact that she was able to use what had been such a source of pain and anguish for her growing up to weaponize that, to turn that into a source of power and to invert the social structure is really quite extraordinary.
0: I think you use the term appeared rather than passed as white because she didn't just barely pass. Her hair, her nose, her skin, everything looked white, racially speaking. And the other part of it I think that you really bring home in the book is that Really one of the biggest traumas facing slaves was separation. In, in this case, it was separation from, from her mother, but also William her eventual husband also was separated from his family through slave auctions. And it was just devastating. And you, you really, uh, I, th- I think, bring a very visceral sense of that devastation.
1: Thank you. It's central to their experiences. It's central to their escape. It's central to slavery in America. The looming possibility at any moment that one could be separated from one's loved ones and have one's fate completely transformed just on a whim or on a wager or on a money that an enslaver might have lost. So there's never any security and there's always surveillance.
0: And one piece of context here is that the international slave trade was banned in 1807. So slaves could no longer be, at least legally, be imported into the United States from Africa. And so the only way to get more slaves was through procreation, which in many cases involved the slave master raping their female slaves. And that's what happened in in Ellen's case. And, And it really, I'm not sure to what extent you deal with this in your book to some extent, but the kind of discomfort for people who were abolitionists to see a white woman on stage, knowing that she was a slave. So wait a second, if she's a slave, she was a slave anyone could be a slave and so that the kind of uh, idea that it wasn't just this other race that was enslaved it's anyone could be
1: yes that was for white audiences it was a shock and it played out again night after night as eleanor william craft went on the abolitionist lecture circuit telling their story and we have to maybe pause just for a moment to acknowledge how brave it was for them to do that because not only do they make this harrowing journey, like terrifying journey out of slavery. But then when they're at a point where they could go somewhere where they would be safe and potentially anonymous, they choose not to do that, but instead to tell the story. And this is night after night. They are, I looked at their sort of tour schedule and their friend, William Wells Brown, had them on this like just insane circuit. And each night they would have to replay their trauma because people would want to know the details of what bondage was like. And there was always this highly charged moment where Ellen Kraft comes out and the impact on audiences when they see white audiences, when they see this woman who looks as white as themselves or as they repeatedly write, they say she could be our mother or, or our sister or our daughter. She could be us. And I think there's a way in which her presence really brings home humanizes, for people who don't always see others as human like themselves, the, the reality of what slavery was like.
0: And her speech pattern, I imagine, also was not just white, but high-class white because of her spending her whole childhood as a personal slave to her half-sister. So she didn't sound like a slave, whatever that means, either.
1: Yeah, so she was able to transform her physical appearance, also her voice, her manner, her gestures, the way she carried her body, all these different things. And she grew up in this rather elite household where people read and went to school and spoke in these gentlemanly or ladylike cadences, and she was able to impersonate that perfectly.
0: And in terms of skills, they needed specific skills, or at least her skills especially, to pull this off. So I think maybe it was possibly William's idea first, but she had the skills to make it all work, especially her knowledge of what what she needed to look like and also how she needed to act and also how she needed to dress and also to be able to make her own clothing to look like a male. And it was just done so incredibly cleverly she was illiterate, so she was not going to be able to sign her name for the tickets. <laughs> so she had to figure out everything in advance.
1: What's interesting is that when you read the 1860 narrative, and it's written in William Crass' voice, and actually the cover page and the original narrative has just his name, right? Presenting the story as under his authorship. Now, scholars commonly attribute the book to both of them because there are simply things that he recounts and describes that he wasn't privy to. She has to have narrated those parts of the story in order for him to be able to to tell it in his voice. But so when you read this 1860 narrative, he says, "This was my idea. My wife really." didn't want to have any part of this. She was terrified. She was reluctant. She only did this because I persuaded her to and because she had to. She absolutely had to. And I think this was strategic on the crafts part because it was really a shocking transgression for her to be putting on male clothes. And this was a time where women were not supposed to be publicly speaking out on the stage, much less having masqueraded in a man's clothing. So you have the crafts presenting it as his idea. But one of the things I discovered when doing the painstaking digging the research and as I looked at successive iterations of their telling the story from the very first days when they were out of bondage and in the north is that it's not so clear. It's either there's there are actually suggestions in some sources that it was her idea. And then there the newspaper accounts early on have it reported in the passive voice. So you can't tell whose idea it was. It was like the idea was conceived rather than Ellen conceived the idea or William conceived the idea. It was left vague. And it's only later on as they're telling the story on the road, and it's actually William is picking up as a public speaker, starting to talk more about his own story and learning these strategies of storytelling that you start seeing the I come in and where that sentence becomes actually active and where William becomes the agent and not Ellen.
0: Yeah, one thing that we really, I think, need to mention that I don't think we've mentioned it yet is explaining the title and that the primary ruse is that she pretended to be William's master. And that was the way they escaped. Of course, that's like the central element in, in their escape plan. And she, she needed to cover her face uh, partly and pretend to be an invalid in, in order to need him close by. And even though her voice, I, I, I think you mentioned in the book that her voice, did sound like a woman's voice, but the appearance was so convincing that people overlooked this. Oh, this young man has a gentle voice.
1: There's only one time, actually, when her voice is described by a an onlooker who ends up writing about this later on because he gets this kind of weird twitchy feeling this intuition that there's something about this woman or this sorry this young man that doesn't seem quite right and he describes her voice as being low almost womanly and a friend actually observes as ellen and william are shuffling off that that person there is either a woman or a genius (laughs) or both And, and she turns out to be both exactly or both she is both but yeah, it was all like a matter of her own performance. One of the things I looked into was, you know, what are these clothing items that she's wearing? And when you read, again, like the later narratives, eyewitness reports, people are talking about how stylish she looks, a fashionable young man, like rich clothes. And remember, she has to pass not only as uh, white, she's crossing lines of race, gender, ability and class that's four major lines that she's crossing so she has the white complexion the fair skin and she knows that she can pass as white she's at actually a disadvantage when it comes to her clothing because she doesn't have as much as people describe her later as being so stylish and as appearing rich the clothes that she actually was wearing as i learned were not in top form so William had to go from place to place and look for these individual pieces of clothing. So it's not like she got like a set, she had to pull it all together in different pieces. He got a jacket and a vest that were just gigantic. And these were not custom made for her as like the highest gentleman would have done at that time. These were manufactured clothing items. She might've tailored them a bit because she she was herself a very skilled seamstress, but. When William first saw her in this vest, he he got scared because he says, this thing is so gigantic. It was like all the way down to her hips. And he was afraid that she wouldn't be able to pass muster. So she is the one who assured him, I know how this is done. As long as I put a big the jacket over it, no one's going to notice. But it took an absolutely stellar performance for her to come across as being the elite gentleman she was, because certainly the clothes themselves on their own didn't say that.
0: One thing that you make really clear in, in the book, and I've, you know, I've read this elsewhere as well, is that you know racism was quite rampant in the North too, even though you had the abolition movement, uh, one of the centers was Boston. Even in a place like Boston, there were incredibly racist people, um, including Daniel Webster, who was an American hero, supposedly.
1: Yeah, exactly. Actually, Frederick Douglass can be quoted saying, it's almost worse. It's actually worse in the North than it is in the South. So just because you had no legal bondage in Massachusetts and in Boston at this time doesn't mean those prevailing attitudes towards race didn't carry over. They were very much alive. And in fact, there were a lot of people in Boston across the country who profited from slavery, whether they were enslavers or not. People who, for example, worked in the cotton industry, or who had cotton manufactories these were people who got their cotton from where? From the South. So they were enriched off the labor of the enslaved, the stolen labor of the enslaved, even if they themselves didn't directly do the enslaving. So they had a lot at stake in the perpetuation of the system that led to their own profits.
0: And you write that even the Quakers sometimes drew lines reserving separate colored benches in their meeting places. And you think of the Quakers as being at the forefront of the abolitionist movement. But even there, I'm sure it wasn't every congregation, because I think there probably was there quite a few Quaker congregations in Boston, even though it's a tiny movement that was centered there. But even with the Quakers.
1: That's exactly right. The Quakers did abolished slavery among themselves in the 18th century. And there were there was a really powerful cohort of activists who were anti-slavery and who who did support journeys of self-emancipation like the crafts. That said, the Quakers, like everybody else, like you and I, like Bostonians, like like Charlestonians, there were people of every different kind. And to say that just because they were affiliated with this one a religion doesn't mean that they didn't have some of these prejudices as well. And that's something I really tried to uh, bring out in the book is not merely to condemn one part of the country or one segment of uh, a population for their views, but show how these various views carried over and how there were really people who are doing good and people who are doing not so good all across the country, across the world.
0: Yeah. And, and even though you obviously don't have a whole lot of sympathy for the slave mentality, so the slaving, uh, you also, I think, try to get at least a little bit into their heads that they had motives that uh, were had to do with preserving the union or motives having to do with the, the rule of law that you, you can't just resist the law as if the law doesn't exist, because there's a really wonderful section of your book that's just so incredibly exciting. When the Fugitive Slave Act was passed, and you had slave hunters coming into Boston, looking for the crafts and the response by the crowds to prevent them, you know, that, but that was extra legal what, what these crowds were doing. They were t- taking law into their own hands. And so from the point of view of the South, so you can't do this, it's going to destroy the union and it's going to create civil war, which of course happens eventually anyway.
1: Yes, I think one thing that we don't always think about now as we look back on the history is at this point in time, the Constitution actually had, the United States Constitution had a clause which is known as a fugitive slave clause, which made it imperative, which made it imperative to return um, actually, the Constitution itself didn 't get into the rules, but it promised that enslavers could recapture those they enslaved if they crossed state lines. It said that if one if a person who owed labor in one state moved to another state, that the person the people to whom that labor was owed had a right to go after them. so this was in the Constitution itself. so when you have a nation like ours that was on the cusp of being just about to be torn apart over this issue of slavery, even if you are not pro-slavery, there is that argument that this is the constitution that holds us together and we have to uphold this whether we like it or not. And then of course, there were some who said there was actually a higher law that we need to obey that calls us to take the law into our own hands. And hence you have the kinds of protests and uprisings that you mentioned.
0: Yeah, it's amazing that the Constitution was written at all, given that this issue was so divisive at the time of the writing of the Constitution, and so-called compromises had to be made between the slave states and the non-slave states, the so-called free states. And But the, the tension between those two points of view just got stronger and stronger over time, and, and, and it was not a workable compromise at all. The other thing is about the Fugitive Slave Act, if I understand it correctly, is yes, the South always had a right to retrieve their slaves, but the Fugitive Slave Act was, in a sense, co-opting the free states to cooperate with this. They had to actually help return the slaves.
1: Exactly. So there had been a Fugitive Slave Act in place already, but it wasn't strongly enforceable. And what this new Fugitive Slave Act did in 1850 as part of the compromise, this great compromise, as it was known, is it gave it gave teeth to the enslavers, as, as it was repeatedly described. It empowered them as never before and gave them specific means to be able to go into other states, bypass the local judiciary, appeal to special commissioners, and it required every good citizen, that's in direct quotes, every good citizen to support this law. So all of a sudden, if you have William and Ellen Craft across state lines now in Massachusetts and the slave hunters, if they got a warrant, they could raise a posse and calling upon anybody off the street, you or or me, if I were there, it didn't matter who we were, any good citizen, any person to come in and help capture the enslaved. And if you were caught upon like that, you couldn't resist. Otherwise, you yourself would have to uh, face potential prison or or really steep fines. So it really made the entire nation complicit in this system of slavery.
0: Yeah. I, and I think that must have been the reason why it was so enraging to abolitionists that not only this slavery continuing, but you're expecting me to help can make the system work, I and mean, it's, it's really incredible. And, and and the part that was a compromise at my understanding is that it had to do with the new territories, that the Mexican-American War had just happened and all these new territories are opening up, and the question is when those territories beca- became states, would they be slave states or free states? And there's a lot of tension over that. I, I remember reading somewhere that one of the possible compromises that never happened is that this number of slave states could be increased, thereby providing more senators for the U.S. Senate, was to divide Texas up into four states, (laughs) because it's big enough to do that. That never happened, but that would have been one possibility.
1: Yeah, there were all kinds of different ideas. And before the compromise, there was an even balance. And then this question was like, if you had, you know, you had the Mason-Dixon line before from the compromise of 1820 and that sort of divided North and South. But what about if you have this gigantic long state like California? it's long and skinny and it sits right on top of that line. So what do you do about that? Do you cut it into pieces? Do you admit other states in a balance? So it was really, we were almost at the point of civil war really at this point. And it's been said that it's Daniel Webster as a Northerner who came making the speech and really actually putting the Fugitive Slave Act right at the center of it and saying, Northerners, you are not doing your duty by the constitution, by this promise that we made when we entered this compact in the 18th century with the founding of our nation, you have to step up, we have to step up. This is a sacrifice that we need to make in order to bring our nation together.
0: Yeah. And I think someone like Daniel Webster really believed he was saving the union, even though the civil war would start less than 10 years later
1: one could say, yes, that the, it held, there's one historian who says this, that moment where he made a statement about the fugitive slave act, that is a moment that held off civil war for the next 10 years.
0: If we could just get back for a moment to the, the scene when the slave hunters hunting William and Ellen, Willis Hughes and John Knight. They came up from Macon, Georgia, which is where the William and Ellen were slaves up to Boston and fully expecting to retrieve them. And they were sounding like they were very confident about it. They had the law on their side. They had the Fugitive Slave Act. And Ellen and William had so many allies that you you can imagine they had a whole kind of intelligence service working in their favor, knowing that they were coming, knowing when they arrived, knowing where they were located. There were houses that had secret passageways in them. It's just an amazing story.
1: It really is. Maybe we can break it down between the the slave hunters and then talk a little bit about William Allen craft and sort of the fortifications that they had there in their community. but these are these were almost when you read about them in the papers, they are really caricatured at one point, so they go in anonymously, and this is again part of the reach of this compromise and the Fugitive Slave Act is that the crafts and slavers don't themselves have to go up to the north to claim their slaves they can send proxies so there's all this paperwork you can actually see it online it's one of the things i've been meaning to do on my website is to is to uh, give direct access to some of these documents but they have these documents signed off by Robert Collins by Ira Taylor who are the crafts uh, respective enslavers they were enslaved by two different people they have these documents authorizing these the Willis Hughes who's the sort of like the, the brain and the brawn of the operation to go to pursue the crafts. And so they're going in anonymously. They land at this hotel, which is, talk about irony of ironies. It's called the United States Hotel. And I've walked myself from that location. It's no longer in existence, but from the United States Hotel, like across the common, it's like a, like a 15 minute walk or something like that. 15-minute walk separates him from William and Ellen Craft. 15 minutes and yet so much more because of the establishment that the Crafts have. He knows that he can't just go in there, go to this sort of center of Black Boston and take out the Crafts, even though that's what some people are advising him, people who don't want to get involved. He knows that he needs to have the law on his side. And this just crazy sort of cat and mouse journey ensues. And that was actually, it was really fun and interesting to put that together. I made I made these giant timelines while I was writing the book. It's like hundreds of pages of timelines um, for the different parts of the story. And in this particular one, I wanted to figure out where each player was at various times. So I'd have, I'd have rows that would indicate the date or the time, or even down to the hour, and then I'd have columns with, let's say John Knight or Willis Hughes or the crafts and slavers, and then the crafts individually, because they start hiding in different places. And I got a map and I was plotting their locations on a map and it's insane how many times they came so close.
0: The, 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 I think you have the makings of a video game here. You know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it really was. Yeah, yeah. I, I, one could.
0: <laughs> yeah. Escape the slave hunter. <laughs> yeah. And, and then even though they have all the support and it seems like they're not going to get captured ever. And you have this sheriff. Boston had a sheriff at that time. Similar. We still have sheriffs here in New Mexico, but <laughs> they had a sheriff who refused to, to sign the order. He just came, came up with excuses and just never got around to it. So that, that's you know, part of the reason why they couldn't do it legally. But eventually it seemed, I think, to the crafts that eventually they could be captured. And they got tired of all the lecture, lecture circuit was exhausting, and the having to always worry about getting recaptured was exhausting
1: they must have been physically exhausted really from the moment they arrived in the north they really didn't have any kind of break and actually far from saying that they were protected in this community i think they were intensely vulnerable at any every moment and that's one of the things that i learned from making these charts and things is is that intense vulnerability in the end we end up getting for example we can celebrate their journey out of the South to the North and focus on the highlight highlighted points where they overcome. We can do the same thing for their journey across the abolitionist lecture circuit or then their journey within Boston where the slave hunters are there. But it was not a foregone conclusion at any point during their initial escape from the South. They could have been captured, they came so close. They would have been sold apart from each other. They would have likely been physically punished, maybe killed, tortured in front of each other. Those same possibilities hover over really every part of their story, including in Boston. So everyone actually in Boston, the, the presumption was actually that they would be captured. and the Marshall and others were preparing for that eventuality. They were, trying to, they were equally focused on figuring out where are they are going to be jailed? How are we going to get them to the South as they were on retrieving them? So the fact that they got out is really incredible. And that's where I think even if you know that they get out, the how of it, is just intensely exciting it was for me even though obviously i know what happens at the end of the story and at the end of every chapter i felt myself at the edge of the seat because they really just came so close to not making it
0: and one of the solutions that was proposed but rejected by both sides which is amazing was that their freedom could have been purchased because they could have compensated they could have easily raised the money not them they wouldn't have to pay for it themselves but the Abolitionist societies would raise the money and they could pay their slave masters to at the market price. But both sides rejected it out of principle.
1: Can you imagine? Yes. Actually, Frederick Douglass had his freedom purchased. William Wells Brown, who the crafts were traveled with, eventually also got his freedom purchased. But that was never on the table for the Crafts as a matter of principle. And actually, it was never on the table for their enslavers either, because it wasn't for everybody involved. It wasn't just about the Crafts and their case. It really felt to everyone like the future of slavery um, and the fate of the nation were on the line. Ellen Craft's enslaver, Robert Collins, says, I know that Ellen Craft would not make a great slave at this point. She's experienced a whole other life the the North, He's not thinking about the the physical use that he's going to have of her as a piece of human property, but it's a matter of principle. He says he wanted to make this a test case for the nation. And so when this, these offers are made, and honestly, at this point, long past the point where he has any hope of getting uh, of capturing them, there are these offers being made, right? Even when the crafts are overseas, offers are being made. But Robert Collins refuses.
0: Yeah. He was defending the whole institution of slavery, basically.
1: Exactly. And he says, if they can, the idea behind this is if they can be bought, then any sort of anyone can be freed and then it undermines the whole system and the crafts for the exact same reason, they say, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be bought for two cents because if we can be purchased, then we're, what about all those people who can't be? We need to fight for them, and we need to stand with them.
0: So I'm wondering if we could shift gears a bit and talk about their next decision, which was, it was just too exhausting to worry about being recaptured, and so they decided to move to England. So how did that work? How did, how did that happen, and, and what was it like for them there?
1: Actually. Just to, to credit them, I don't think it was exhaustion alone, because obviously they were the ex- exhausted, but it was more that it was it just seemed more and more inevitable that bigger and bigger guns were being called in. At the point that they decide that they have to flee, that's when Daniel Webster himself is getting personally involved. The president himself has been contacted. The this, this circle is closing in on them. and. They realized that they could do more, I think, speaking out against slavery and standing up and being alive than than the other consequences of being captured. And also, there are so many people who pledged their lives to supporting them, there would have been bloodshed. So there were so many other lives at stake besides their own, and they wanted to make a, a larger international impact. And they happen to know that William Wells Brown. This we haven't spoken yet about him, but he's really one of my my favorite characters in the book.
0: Yeah, he's like the chief supporting actor, right? (laughs) If it were a movie.
1: Yeah, exactly. He gives somebody an Oscar for that. He's this incredibly charismatic, brilliant orator, storyteller, people person, people, all different kinds of people. It said would like you know, you meet a certain person who has a certain kind of charisma, and they invite you to tell their story. So not only did he tell stories really well himself, but he was an incredible listener and people wanted to confide in him. And he had this ability, both one-on-one and in giant halls of just connecting. He had that sort of charisma. I guess there's no other real way to express it. And he He's the one who invited them first to tell their story, to go on the road. And at a pivotal moment, this is actually a moment of serious like exhaustion on their part. They had escaped bondage, they had spent months on the road with this incredibly charismatic but tireless man who could be quite exhausting, when he says, hey, let's go international. I've been invited to go to France, you want to come and tell the story over there? they decided they were going to stay in Boston. And that turned out to be a fateful decision because that's when the whole Fugitive Slave Act and the, and the slave hunt uh, came into play. But the good news is that when they needed to flee the nation, they knew that he was going to be overseas. And of course, he knows a good story, he's already telling the story, he's ready for them to join him. So they had a place to go, they had a platform, but it was by no means certain that they were going to make it. All the ports are being watched, the boat that William Wells Brown himself had taken from Boston to Liverpool out of Boston Harbor, the steamship Cambria that they might have taken from there, they weren't going to be able to get on in Boston because everyone was watching and because the slave hunters were actually one of them stayed around and was waiting around in New York, hoping to be called back. So they had to take this other longer harrowing escape under on the under, underground railroad, also taking trains and boats and all kinds of things to be able to get out of the country. And if the first journey out of the South seemed to be Almost charmed, and that they dodged all these incredible bullets. Everything magically, it seemed, went right. They made all their shift changes and everything. This second journey out of America is like disastrous. And I'll just say that. Yeah,
0: with all kinds of delays and so on. And they had to go via Canada in order to take a boat from there.
1: They could have, as I said, that same ste- steamship going out of Boston Harbor, it paused at Halifax before going to Liverpool. So they might have made it in those two beats, but instead it's a multi-pronged journey with another epic adventure.
0: A lot of delays and, and some really rough seas going over the Atlantic. And
1: yeah, everything goes wrong.
0: But they made it. And not only do they make it, but because of William Wells Brown, they were able to hit the ground running and immediately join the lecture circuit there, like without missing a beat almost.
1: Exactly. I think William is rearing to go when they arrive in the UK. And again, there's just so many beats that lead up to this moment that I, I can't really recount briefly now, but the book will carry you through that. By the time they get overseas, Ellen is really sick. They're both sick. They're both physically exhausted and in trouble, but Ellen is really dangerously ill. And when they arrive in Liverpool, they hear from Brown, who's, hey, you want to come and meet me and go on the road? And they decide that Ellen is too sick. They pause there for a few days. And then William actually goes, without her so this is the first time they've really had any kind of individual journey physical journey apart from each other and i think that's why this last part of the story was, I felt like so critical. Originally, I was, the scope of the book was such that it was going to end with their feet touching the UK. But my editor, Don Davis was like, I want to know what happens in the UK. And also the more and more I thought about it, we haven't seen them as really as separate. They're working as a team up until this whole time. But once they get to the UK and they're out of danger of being in bondage, now they get to decide for themselves what their freedom is gonna look like. Now they get to go on these individual journeys and make different kinds of choices. And immediately upon arrival, they are given this opportunity, and at least William is, and he has this, it's one of my favorite chapters to write, the funnest chapters to write, but there's this sort of bromance adventure that he goes on with William Wells Brown as they take Edinburgh by storm.
0: Yeah, and William became quite an orator himself, it sounds. Whereas Ellen was riveting for other reasons, both her appearance and her dignity and straightforwardness. But William, it sounds like he was really more of a, similar to the other William, Wells Brown, was a very riveting, skilled speaker.
1: Yeah, I'm sure he learned too from being on the road with such a brilliant speaker as William Wells Brown. But he himself was naturally, he came across as being very self-possessed, he expressed himself really well. He was funny. That's something I think that people found surprising. when When he has his first sort of solo speaking experience in the United Kingdom. He's not focusing on the sad notes. He surprises, jolts everyone by this incredible picaresque adventure with some very lively, dramatic, and even funny moments. He uses humor as a strategy, as did William Wells Brown.
0: One thing that, that you didn't mention yet is that the, William and Ellen weren't married until much later, I think after they got to Boston and before they went to England. And one thing you, you just, as almost as, as in the passing, you mentioned that she had to give up certain rights <laughs> in getting married, which is a whole different story than slavery, but she no longer had the right to own property on her own. There were all these laws that were, that were sexist, that were still on the books, she couldn't vote, and but on balance, it, it made sense to them to have that legal status.
1: As an enslaved woman, she never had any of those rights to lose, so it's more talking about the institution of marriage and what it did for women who were, who did have those rights. So I guess I should back up also to say that even though they weren't legally married because slave marriages were not recognized, they were married to each other when they were in Macon. Two years after they meet, they decide to ask permission of their enslavers to marry. This was required at the time. And it's something, marriage is something that Ellen Craft in particular avoided because of all the trauma that she had experienced in childhood and continually being exposed to the separations between family members. She decided that she did not want to get married and not have children of her own until she was free and william understood this because he also had similar experiences but at that time there was really it just seemed like there was going to be no way out all the borders were closing before you had the possibility of escaping south let's see, to florida to mexico after the Mex- mexican war that doesn't happen that possibility is not there anymore the surveillance becomes even higher and so it's really love that makes them that drives them to seek each other as husband and wife even though it's not legally possible as closely as they could in bondage so then they have a like a slave ceremony which is again something that's not recognized by their enslavers but it is something that they recognize and that their community recognizes but once they get to the north even though they consider each other husband and wife they have there's slave law marriages are not recognized by law, and which is why in a really dramatic moment right on the eve of their escape from America, they ask their friend, the rebel preacher, Theodore Parker, would you please marry us tomorrow? And I actually got to see the space where they were married, which was just an incredible experience not too long ago.
0: Wow, that's really amazing. And then while they're in England, of course, the um, civil war happens and emancipation happens and suddenly it becomes possible for them to return to the US, which if I understand correctly, they did primarily because Ellen especially wanted to find her mother, but actually, but she sends for her mother first, right? First, they reunite in, in England.
1: She does. Yeah. What happens before 1852, that's really what I focus on, but I do give the broad contours of what happens later. There's not as much archival material that's available, so there's no way I could have sustained the level of detail that I do in the first part of the story.
0: That's why it's called a coda in your book.
1: Yeah, exactly, because the symphony ends with their not only being free, but really accomplishing all the goals that they set out for themselves at the start of their journey. Those goals are entwined with their idea of freedom. So that's really, again, why I felt like I needed to see it through not only to when they leave the United States, at which point they're physically safe, but when they realize these other manifestations of freedom that they've been pursuing really all their lives. But the, there's an extended coda, and. I actually found new material that's going to be included in the paperback edition to the book, which will be out in January. Because the thing that's funny is that we think about history as being fixed and past, but it's always changing. It's always changing because we're discovering new things. And one of the things that I've learned since the hardback came out is that there was actually another craft child. And the story of this craft child also intersects with Ellen's this is going to be a spoiler, but eventual reunion with her mother. I guess I'm not so worried about spoilers because, as I've said before, the how of this story is so fascinating that it doesn't matter if you know what happens. The how will really pull you in and surprise you.
0: Yeah, it's still as I mentioned earlier, it's still riveting, even knowing the ending. It's still riveting to to read about the, the, these harrowing scenes of uh, in their escape and 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 also other parts of the book as well. And, and another thing that you, uh, in the coda of the book, you make it clear that this is not a happily ever, a, ever after ending, that they still faced quite a bit of hardship, even after they moved back to the States, setting up a farm in North Carolina or South Carolina.
1: Yeah, South Carolina.
0: In South Carolina, it wasn't so easy to make a normal life just because emancipation happened. And Of course, there still were incredibly racist attitudes and racist people ready to burn down their farm and just still more hardship.
1: Yes. And the thing is, this the original title for my book was Master, Slave, Husband, Wife, An American Love Story, Not an Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom. And it's, it's that phrase, an American love story, is one that I come back to again and again because it really is about their relationship with each other. It's about their relationship with the nation. And I guess when I think of a love story, I want to make clear that it's not like a fairy tale, happily ever after love story. It's more of an enduring relationship. There's a Korean expression that's called, it's called Chung and what it means is not just, it's not the fairy tale ending, the romance. It's more like an enduring connection that you have with somebody. And it can be wonderful. It can also be, you can have a painful, difficult bond with somebody and yet still have this connection and caring for them. It's supposed to be untranslatable, but that's the best that I can do with it briefly. But I guess I also conceive this as an American Chung story, if that's possible, which is a long, profound, loving, but not idealized connection between a couple and a nation.
0: Yeah, you don't necessarily get a, a sense of how they relate to each other, other than that they were credibly there for each other and, and helping each other and having the same vision, the same values, the same goals, but you don't get a sense of their interaction really. And I guess there just isn't information about it. You just have to imagine it.
1: I think you can get it through their actions. If character is revealed by action, and you can say a relationship is also revealed by action, and I think one can feel the depth of their connection and the the decisions they make and the way in which they move and travel together, but also eventually the ways in which they move and travel apart and give each other separate spaces and room to grow.
0: And then, of course, they have, what, five or six kids? Yes. Together, eventually
1: they do. We're
0: just about out of time. I don't know if you have an idea for your next project, but can we get a sneak preview into that?
1: I have a couple different things that I'm bouncing around, but it's too early, I think, in the gestation to really be able to name them. But I think I will actually be traveling with the crafts for a while longer, and I will also be developing things. There are so many incredible materials, and we didn't talk much about sources, but there are sources that I uncovered that are actually very accessible, even digitally, if you know where to find them. So one of the things I also wanna do is to develop my website, and also I'll post these things on Instagram uh, as I start putting up new pieces of my website that enable people to interact with these pieces of history and study them. And hopefully that will take others in new places, maybe inspire new kinds of research, both about the crafts and other histories.
0: And who knows, maybe eventually there'll be a movie or a drama series. It's certainly a topic worthy of that.
1: <laughs> yes, it really felt to me like a movie from the very beginning.
0: I want to thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Uh, Ilian Wu, uh, the author of Master, Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom, a wonderful work of history, biography, and creative nonfiction. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.